Lent Sunday. And so tomorrow we begin the great fast, which is the really pinnacle in the life of the church, this season of the, the Holy Lent and the Holy 50 days that come after it, the Paschal season of the church. And in the pre-Lent Sunday, the church gives us this reading, which comes from the Sermon on the Mount. And um, it's good for us to think about what it is Lent is and how we might approach Lent this year and how to view what exactly is my role in this great season of the church. Oftentimes, people will come um, to the priests before the Lenten season for confession, which is a very good practice. I encourage all of you at least to try to confess once during this Lenten season. Um, and we will approach our Father of Confession and with a certain zeal to increase our pious activities. We want to pray more, we want to read more, we want to make prostrations, we want to do more vigils at church, maybe go on retreats. And so oftentimes we might think that the Lenten season is a time in which I offer gifts to the Lord. And it's not wrong, of course, for us to want to offer gifts to the Lord. But the reality is is that we should begin the Lenten season by remembering that Lent is a gift from God for us. It's not what I can do for him. It's what he wants to give us this season. And so each one of us should begin this Lenten season asking and searching and praying, Lord, where do you want to meet with me this season to do what in my life, to accomplish what work in my life? So this is the first sort of corrective that I would, I would offer all of us is that don't ask what you can give God this season, but ask what he wants to give you. And don't leave him until he gives you an answer. What is it that he wants you to discover this season in your life about him, about yourself? And if it means that it is a period of discovery and not quote-unquote improvement in your life, then so be it. This is not a season in which we uh, seek some sort of measurable change that we can look on ourselves and say, oh, I have made improvement in my spiritual life. Perhaps we need to go backwards at times even. And maybe this is the time for us to, th to think in those terms instead of how far ahead I can move in my spiritual life. The gospel today speaks about, and over and over again, the secret place. Do this in secret. Don't do it to appear before men doing it, whether it's prayer, fasting, almsgiving. And what is the secret place? For God, the secret place is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's his secret place. And what is your secret place and my secret place? It's the human heart. It's the inner depths of our being. That's the secret place. So when Christ speaks to us about the secret place, he wants there to be an encounter between his secret place, which is his kingdom, and your secret place, which is the inner depths of your being, your, your heart, the spiritual heart. And so it's not that we can't appear to be fasting, because if all of us are fasting, we are appearing to each other to be fasting. It's not that we shouldn't do a good deed if by chance I will be seen doing it. It's more about activating the life of the heart, living in the heart, doing things from the heart and for 
that encounter with the secret place of God, which is his kingdom, and not for some external gratification or even external reward. So this is maybe the first thing that we might think of in this Lent, is how to go deeper into the heart and stand there, to, to remain in the heart, to be attentive in the heart, where, where that encounter God wants to make with us. Uh, one of the uh, contemporary spiritual masters said, for our God is a jealous God who will not settle for anything less than the whole of man's heart. God is a jealous God. He wants all of you. He wants to meet you in the totality of your being. So, in order to do that, we have to sort of stand in vigilance. We have to stand attentive to the God who is coming to us. Again, Lent is a time when he is coming to us, not a time when we are running to him. And that wonderful um, Carmelite nun, Sister Ruth Burroughs, she says, we miss countless opportunities when God is there offering himself because we don't notice him. We are not really looking for him. This is where our attention should be, the whole of it, on noticing where he is and what he is asking now, not on spiritual states, stages, what happens to us when we are at prayer, what we feel of God and all the rest of it. What matters is that at every moment in my life, I am there waiting and receptive. Be still and know that I am God, the psalmist says, Psalm 45 or 46. Be still and know that I am God. Go into your heart, be attentive, find him there. See what he asks of you. What is the encounter that he wants to give you? Elder Paisius put it in very simple and, and, and beautiful words that a child would understand. He said, when a little child is playing and all, and he is totally absorbed in all of his toys, he's not aware of his father who may be next to him caressing him. But if he, if he interrupts his play, even just for a moment, then he might become aware of his father's caresses. Similarly, when we are preoccupied with many activities and are anxiously concerned about them, when we worry too much about worldly matters, we cannot become aware of God's love. So it's, it's just a very simple image that he gives us. A child is absorbed in his toys in the family room, and he's not aware that his father or his mother is behind him, caressing him, kissing him, loving him, because he's too absorbed in his toys. But if for a moment he were to just direct his attention to his father or his mother, he would become aware of the love, the caresses that he wants to, the, the, the father or the mother wants to give their child. And this is the same with us. So the danger for us in Lent is that sometimes our activities in Lent, our spiritual activities, become more things that we're preoccupied with, more things that we're anxious about, more things that we're focused on doing and missing who it is that we're doing it for. I have to say my psalms. I have to do my matanyas. I have to go to church and, and, and fast for the, before 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I feel a certain satisfaction if I do these things. But don't miss the encounter. Don't miss that in the busyness even of your spiritual activities, who it is that's waiting for you, who's seeking you. St. Augustine in one of his famous sayings says, You were within me, but I was outside of myself, and there I sought you outside. In my weakness, I am after the beauty of the things you have made. I was after the things that are your effects, but not you. 
He says, you were with me and I was not with you. The things you have made kept me from you. Even the gifts, the great gifts of God that he gives us can be distractions from God himself. So how might we define spirituality then? If spirituality, we want to be careful not to define spirituality as a set of pious practices. I'm not, I'm not discrediting piety, pious practices like fasting and saying our prayers and doing prostrations. These pious practices are beautiful, they're good. But are they the essence of spirituality? How might we define the essence of spirituality? Again, one contemporary spiritual father, I think, defined it very simply and very beautifully. He says, spirituality is the conflict that I feel or that I experience between what I believe, between what I believe and what's happening in my life. Again, spirituality is the conflict that I experience within me between what I believe and between what's happening with me in my life at that moment. So I have certain ideals, beliefs about my faith, about God, about his commandments, about his teachings, about the kingdom, about virtue. These are my beliefs. We all have these beliefs, and we try to go deeper into knowing these beliefs. And at some point when I face these beliefs with the reality of what's happening in my life at this moment, my suffering, my pain, my sins, my weaknesses, my anxieties, there's a conflict. What I believe and who I really am. Dealing with this conflict is spirituality. That's the spiritual life. So don't reduce the spiritual life to things that we do. But spiritual life is the encounter of the conflict and how I resolve the conflict. And so what Christ offers us in this conflict is freedom. He wants us to confront ourselves and be honest with ourselves And he wants to give us freedom, not relief. So again, we might say that in the spiritual life, what we seek is not relief from the tension, but freedom. What's the difference? Relief is sort of the quick fix band-aid. It's the, it's substituting pleasure for joy. You know, it's, it's, it's the ice cream, which gives me an immediate pleasure versus the food that really feeds my body with nourishment. So what the world is very good at on all the commercials and, and the conveniences that the world offers us is relief. You have a stomach ache, there's a, a pill for that to give you relief, right? You have a headache. I'm not saying these are bad things. We all want relief from our physical ailments and so on. But in the spiritual life, the danger is that when we, when we reach for a relief, we're, rele- we're reaching for a substitute which can be more damaging, more dangerous, and unfulfilling. So when we have that conflict, it's not easy to see what we believe versus who I am, and Jesus doesn't lessen it, right? He says, I I didn't come to bring peace to the world, but a sword. But you're the king of peace. Yes, but the peace comes after the sword, right? Like the sword that pierced the heart of Mary, The peace comes after the sword. The sword is the conflict. The sword is the reality of of who I am at this moment 
versus who God is and, and what he wants for me. And so I have to confront the sword before I, I find the relief. This is the freedom, the freedom which comes with, with, with sacrifice, with pain, with struggle. Another way that we might think of it is responding versus reacting. What's the difference between responding versus reacting? Many of us in our daily life, we react to things based on our nature, our human nature, not based on what we believe. When I consider what I believe, then I can respond. So a human person, naturally, when he is uh, cursed or when he is blasphemed or is mocked, he might um, react. And that reaction might be in like kind, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Right? Or perhaps worse, perhaps you did this to me uh, to honor myself and to shame you for what you did. I will do three times to you what you did to me. So responding is deliberate consideration based on what I believe. That's activating my spiritual life. Responding means prayerfully, contemplatively, meditatively, responding to a situation, to a person, to an incident based on what I believe. And so during this Lent, we should begin with the reality of who we are and where we are. When we look at the the scriptures, God is the God who enters into human history, but not generally. He enters into individual lives. He enters into the life of Abraham and Moses and David and Samuel. and The list goes on and on and on to St. Paul and to the apostles. So when God enters into history, he also enters into my history, He enters into all of my history, my past, my present, my future. He is there. He breaks through my history like he broke through the history of Abraham and Moses and so on. But when he breaks into my history, he finds me where I'm at. Like when he broke into the history of St. Paul, where was St. Paul? He was a persecutor. He was a blasphemer against the Christian faith. He was a zealot. And so... We have to approach or appear with the reality of who we are. There's a couple of examples in the Gospels that tell us not to hide who we are, not to put on pretenses, which the Gospel speaks about today. There is the the story of blind Bartimaeus. Beautiful story, Jesus passing through Jericho, a great multitude with him. And there is blind Bartimaeus on the side of the road, And he begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood there and stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And then they called to the blind man and said, be of good cheer, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. Now remember, there's a great multitude there. So Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Why does he ask the question? It's obvious. He's a blind man begging on on the side of the road for mercy. He knows Jesus heals people. So why does he ask? 
He has to say it. Jesus has to hear him identify where he is. He doesn't say, that I might hear, Lord. Right? He's a blind man. He says, that I might see, that I might receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. Again, another incident we have beautifully in the synagogue when Jesus was teaching in in the synagogue and they tried to catch him because he healed on the Sabbath. And there was a man there in the synagogue whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched very closely. Will he heal this man with the withered hand on the Sabbath that they might accuse him for breaking the law? But Jesus knew their thoughts. And so he told the man with the withered hand to come forward, again, in front of a large number of people. And he says, Jesus says to him, arise and stand here. In other words, to be seen by everybody. And the man with the withered hand came and stood, and Jesus said to him, I will ask you one thing, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And when he looked around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. But my hand, Lord, is the thing that shames me. My hand is what makes me different from everybody else who's stronger, who is more uh, healthy, who is more whole. My withered hand specifically is the thing that defines me as being shameful. Because in those days, anybody who had blindness or a withered hand, they assumed it was because of personal sin or the sin of his parents. But Jesus says to him, I can't heal you until you identify yourself for who you really are. Show your withered hand. And so the man stretched out his withered hand in front of everyone, and at that moment, immediately, he was healed. What's the point of these two stories? They're very common stories. We know them. It's that Jesus oftentimes insists to the person to be honest about what they have, who they are, where they're at in their life, before he offers them healing and salvation. So so the, the Lenten period is not about masking myself with all kinds of activities and pious practices, but it's about learning to stand before him and say, Lord, my withered hand. Lord, my eyes that I might see. Lord, my heart, which is so cold and full of hatred and bitterness and anger and resentfulness. My feet, which are so lazy. What can you do for me, Lord? If we accomplish that in Lent and we feel like we went a thousand steps backwards, I guarantee you, you have accomplished the greatest Lent of your life. So Lent is not about self-improvement. Again, this is sort of a, a, a mixture of sort of worldly thinking with the church. If self-improvement comes, wonderful, we'll take it. No, we're not against self-improvement. But spirituality is not about self-improvement. Spirituality is about the knowledge of God, the knowledge of myself, healing and freedom. And that might not look like self-improvement for many, many, many years. In fact, again, very beautifully, one spiritual father described the spiritual life as precisely rejoicing in our limitations, If you think, he says, think of a musician. I play the guitar. So I'm limited by a few fingers on my right hand, a few fingers on my left hand, and six strings and a number of frets. And with those limitations, 
to be a musician, I tried to make beautiful music with those limitations. Could I make more beautiful music if I had 30 strings, 20 fingers? Why not? More musical notes to play. But the whole aspect of artistry is that you make something beautiful with the limitations. You take an artist who is doing a painting. They're limited by the certain colors that they have, by the materials, the canvas that they use. They're limited by their own eyesight. And the, they're limited by many, many, many things. And from those limitations, they produce something beautiful. Or think of anything in music and art and, and, and theater. It's all about producing beautiful things under the constraint of great limitations. And that's the spiritual life. Jesus doesn't want to take away your limitations. He doesn't want to take away my limitations. He wants to make something beautiful with my limitations, with my withered hand, with my blind eyes. All of those things are the tools in which he says, we will make a beautiful piece of music now. But Lord, I can make better music if I had all of these things gone. He says, no, you don't understand. That's not how the, my divine artistry works. I specialize. My grace is made perfect in what? Weakness. Finally, the Lenten period is about, and I'm stealing here uh, with a short story about a contemporary saint, a beautiful phrase, very short phrase. All of us, I hope we memorize it. Thank God ahead of time. Can we just say it together? Thank God ahead of time. Thank God ahead of time. Thank God before anything in your life unfolds, whatever he offers you. So Lent is like a, a microcosm of the whole human life. The 40 days in the wilderness is a period that the scriptures, the number 40 is always a, a period of preparation and trial and waiting, which represents the whole human life. Our whole hu human life is in the desert for 40 days, whatever number of years that is for each of us. So Lent is like a microcosm of my life. And if my life then is to be seen as a gift, and everything that happens in my life should be seen as a gift, the good and the bad as we say, or as we gesture with our hands, right? that means I should be able to thank God ahead of time. There, um, when we watch a, um, a three-hour football uh, game or a basketball game, many of us, if we miss the game, or even if we watch the game, we'll, we'll go back and we'll watch what we call what the highlights. Right? And so you take a three-hour game and you go on YouTube and you can watch the highlights of the game in three minutes. And there you get all of the impactful moments of the game. Right? And really, if you just watch that reel like, over and over again, you get the, the great joy of watching all the game without all of the interruptions and the timeouts and the commercials. So our life, we have what we call these grace-filled moments, right? Highlights. But why should, I, why should our life only have three minutes of highlights out of a three-hour game? With God, every moment of my life is a grace-filled moment. Every moment of my life is a moment in which God is in my history. He has broken through my history. He's working on transforming my past. He's there at the present, and he's preparing for me my future. So 
Every moment should be when I die at the age of 60, 70, 80, and 100, whatever. The real should be 100 years of grace-filled moments, not three minutes, not a year, not two years. So, there is a, uh, in the 19th century, uh, into the early 20th century, there was uh, a young man born in Wisconsin uh, by the name of Barney, who uh, was a very um, simple uh, Midwestern Catholic young man of a family of 16 children. I believe he was one of 16 children. And uh, he was in the middle, the sixth of 16 children of immigrant Irish parents. Later, he became a monk by the name of Solanus Casey, a Franciscan monk under the Capuchin Order in, in uh, Detroit, Michigan. And he's currently uh, being canonized as a saint in the Catholic Church. I came across Father Solanus' story many, many, many years ago and uh, was greatly inspired. He's the one who coined this phrase, thank God ahead of time. And it's very interesting. Just very briefly, I'll give you just a couple of bullet points of his life. At the, at the age of eight, he contracted diphtheria, which uh, a kind of infection that, that um, caused him to essentially damage his vocal cords and he essentially lost his voice for the most part and took the lives of two of his siblings. And his family went through periods of poverty and great difficulty and he was uh, working as a... Um, a streetcar operator in those days in the late 19th, early 20th century. He was working as a streetcar operator. And one day when he was working as a streetcar operator, he saw in front of him a drunken sailor stab to death a woman and take her life. And he was so impacted by seeing this happen in front of him in the streets that he decided life is not worth, you know, what this world offers us. And he wanted to dedicate his life to God so he had this idea of becoming a priest, to serve God as a priest. And he kept praying and praying, asking for God's guidance. And one day he was praying before um, an image of St. Mary. And he heard a voice, a female voice, say to him, go to Detroit. Go to Detroit. So he didn't know. We went to Detroit. He found this uh, Franciscan monastery. It's, uh, they're called the Capuchins. They wear the, the, the brown um, robes. And they have the long beards like Padre Pio, um, Capuchin Friar, they call him. And he went to Detroit, and he, they said, well, okay, you can come, and we'll, you know, we can test you and see if you can make it in the community. And they sent him for theological studies. He didn't do well. He failed his studies. He was not very good. And they said, you know, if you, if you, if you don't pass your studies, you, you can't really be a priest. But they saw that there was something very special about this young man. He was very... Holy, he was very simple. He loved God from his heart. And so they said, you know what? They have, in the, I guess in the Catholic Church, they have something they called a, a simplex priest. A simplex priest is somebody they ordain as a priest. They, they say, you can just pray the liturgy, but you can't preach because you don't have enough edu like theological education to preach. And you can't take confessions and, and absolve people because you don't have you know, the background in moral theology to be able to instruct somebody you know, in, in confession. So eventually they ordained him as a, as a simplex priest where he was able to pray the mass, but he didn't. And they assigned him to be the doorman. That was his job. And everybody that started to come to the monastery, people from around the area, 
and they came for prayers. He would take their prayers and he would tell them, thank God ahead of time. And he would encourage them with the, about the beauty of God's providence and his love and send them away. And they would come back and they would start to say that miracles were happening. And little by little, up to 200 people a day were coming to the monastery asking for Father Solanus Casey. And he was very simple. He received them at the door. He sat with them. He listened to them. He told them, thank God ahead of time. And then he began sometimes telling them prophetically, your child is going to be healed. Don't be, don't be worried or whatever the situation was. And thousands and thousands and thousands of miracles have now been recorded by this uh, simple monk who wasn't educated enough to be ordained as a, as a full priest. And he was a doorman. And what was his spirituality? What were his gifts? He had total confidence, trust in the goodness of God. That's why he would say, thank God ahead of time. Everything that God gives you is good. Whatever you think of, 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 in your mind of what could be bad, what could be evil, God is good. The word confidence literally means con, with, and fide, which is faith. With faith. Confidence with faith. Live your life with faith in the goodness of God, in the providence of God. And he considered gratitude as the sort of quintessential virtue that brought about joy in one's life and that enabled one to live his life not with just three minutes of grace-filled moments, but to experience every moment of his life as full of grace. 20,000 people in the early 1900s passed by his coffin on the day of his funeral because of this simple holy man who just was full of gratitude and confidence in the goodness of God and said, thank God ahead of time. This is the, the program for Lent for us. All of these, these points, I hope we can together journey. And, um, and let's today thank God ahead of time for what he will give us this Lent. And glory be to God forever. Amen.